Father, as we come right now, we just pray that you'd help us to be still and know that you are God. I think we just feel so unworthy, inadequate, overwhelmed, troubled, that we just simply slow down and be silent before you, Lord. Help us, Father, as we come. May your name be exalted in our silence. May your name be lifted up. May you help our hearts even right now be yours. Help us to consider and think upon Christ and all that you have done for us in Christ. What a precious Redeemer we have in Him. And so we look to You, O God. We need You. And so we look to You and ask that You would help us this morning. Help our eyes to be upon You. May You help us to look to You, the God of truth. Help us that we may look to You as I know, perhaps, I know even in my own life so many times there can be such a a depth of uh, confusion or overwhelming feelings or feelings of just a troubledness about us help us Lord to look to you who are sure to look to you who is our help continually help us Father Look to you. And we pray that you would protect us from sin and from Satan and from his lies, that we would not believe them, his arrows, which are false, but instead may we help, may you help us to cling to your word, the word of truth, all the more. And may you be with us this morning and grow in us, Lord, a hunger for you. May we seek your face. May may you help us, Lord. Help us to be your witnesses. Help us to preach the good news of Jesus Christ here this morning as well as as we leave this morning. May we go out preaching your name and may you be with any who may be here or listening or watching who don't know Christ this morning. May you help them to see their need for you, their deadness, that lostness, that darkness. May you help them to see the light of Christ and run to him. So we pray, be with us, be with me. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you would, go ahead and turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John this morning. And we'll be finishing chapter 11. And so we'll be looking at chapter 11, verses 45 through 57. And as we've been walking through this chapter, we have seen many wondrous things. And at the same time, we've also seen a a great deal of sad things as well. Even a a tone of sadness continually as we've walked through these verses. 
We saw the grief, the, the sadness, the depth of mourning as well over the death of Lazarus. We saw even, you know, he, it's done, he's dead, it's, it's over. And we saw it all began with a simple message from Martha and Mary to Jesus in chapter 11, verse 3. Simple, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And then it went on to Lazarus then dying from that illness, but it did not end there, did it? It continued on with Jesus then going and calling and commanding Lazarus to come out, and he did. And when Jesus did that, it was not some magic trick. It wasn't, you know, he wasn't using smoke and, and mirrors to kind of pull off this, this kind of trick. He wasn't pulling the wool over everyone's eyes when he did that. When it happened, it was real. A man was totally dead and then brought totally back to life by the word of Jesus Christ. And what was the reason for that? The reason was all so that you and I could see Jesus is the Christ and believe. Not a fireworks show. Not for you to go, ooh, ah, wow, you know. But, wow, look at Christ. This is the Christ. And to believe. And if you missed that, you missed the whole thing. So that brings us then to our passage this morning in verses 45 through 57, where we look on then to see how people respond to the signs. How are they going to respond after the wonders that God has done? And so let's read here then, beginning with verse 45. And may God humble and help us to receive his word this morning. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew 
where he was, he would let them know so that they might arrest him. So after all that and the wonders, after Christ raised Lazarus from the dead, we see here that all eyes really are turning to Christ, or at least looking at Christ, and rightly so. You know, I would imagine that there was a great hubbub there over what they had just witnessed, as you can even just think of what that scene would look like after all this took place. And so many would be left wondering, you know, who in the world can do such things like that? You know, who can do wondrous miracles of that sort? Who is that guy? But even then, even as we see all the eyes, or all eyes are turned toward Christ, we find out rather quickly that they all aren't turned to Christ for good as well. Instead, what we see is we see belief and unbelief. Belief and unbelief. So first, you know, many do believe. And I know as we've walked through the Gospel of John, and you've seen that too, we've, we've seen again a number, a number of instances in John's Gospel where we've just simply been left wondering, you know, well, does this group believe? I mean, we've seen so many times again and again that this group who said they believe they really, in the end, don't really believe. And so, in the midst of that, then, we kind of come to this group and we're saying, well, I mean, is this group real too? I mean, are, are they not? I mean, which one is it? Do they really believe or not? Now, here, with this first group, the believing group, I think we do have every reason to think that they indeed did believe in the Lord And this is made apparent in verse 46, this contrast that is set up between the believing ones and these other group. And so, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so the conclusion being that one group believed and then the other group did not believe. And so we're meant to read this and see that contrast and how again and again in John, True and false belief have been contrasted. And so even more at this point, the intent of the religious leaders really wasn't all that big of a secret. You know, most people, I mean, they would have known what they were up to. And so this group going here to go and tell the Pharisees what Jesus had done is not a good sign. They know what they're doing. So they're not a believing group. And so seeing that, though, the believing and unbelieving, and especially this unbelieving group, doesn't make any of that any easier. I mean, their unbelief should sadden us, just like unbelief that we see around us should sadden us today. It's like, you know, watching a house you know, full of people, you know, catch on fire and not being able to do anything about it. That, that should just 
sadness, you know, like, oh, woe is me. Woe for those people who aren't believing. And so we see here then a mixed bag of people, believing and unbelieving, those who have faith and those who are disbelieving. And we see that today also. And that should indeed grieve us. We may well have done this. You know, we may well preach our hearts out. We may share Christ with person after person. And yet still we have this mixed bag where some of those believe and some don't believe. Or maybe not even all of them don't believe. Thinking of the, the prophets of old, given this mission to preach God's word, already knowing everyone they're going to preach to will not turn to God. And yet they were obedient. They were still obedient to preach God's word. Now, in seeing this and seeing the response, you know, we might think surely after, after seeing that, you know, they would believe. I mean, they just saw this man get raised from the dead. You know, you may even think to yourself, you know, I know if I did, I'd believe that. Well, maybe, maybe not. That's not always what we see in Scripture, is it? You know, oftentimes some of the the greatest works of God in Scripture, they are followed by what? Rebellion, not faith. I mean, just consider Exodus and how God, He powerfully delivered the people of Israel and He miraculously did it with incredible wonders and incredible works again and again, even parting the seas. I always think of Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments and that awe-inspiring picture when God just parts the seas and they saw all that. And that was followed by what? Rebellion. Grumbling. Complaining. And unbelief. They saw all that and didn't believe? So we can't really say that we would be, you know, seeing all that and just be like, I would believe that, you know. But surely here, this sign is most certainly shouting for all of us here and anyone everywhere. It's shouting from the rooftops, believe, believe in Jesus Christ. It's true. Trust in him. He is the Savior He's not lying. He's not deceiving. He's not fooling you. He is the one who came for you. And that's why all this is done, so you would see that and believe. But in that way, in this seeing that, I think all of us need to at the same time just take a a slice or two of humble pie and just remember Jesus' words from John 663, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. 
So what are we to do with this? This mixed bag of of belief and unbelief that we see here. We need to fight for faith. We need to keep sharing Christ. That means don't give up. You will be or you will face a mixed bag. You know, some, some will believe and some won't believe, but keep preaching Christ. You know, Jesus, he didn't say, uh, what, even after that, they didn't believe? I'm giving up. I'm just throwing the towel in. You know, let them find their own way. He didn't do that. And to imagine if he had, oh my, but he didn't. And so we aren't to come and look at this that way, nor to live out our lives that way, saying, well, if they don't believe, I am done telling people about Jesus Christ. Jesus, he had his eyes anchored to God in his purposes, in his will, and not on their disbelief. And so it is that Jesus, he says in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In John 10, 16, he says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And so there will be one flock and one shepherd. And so fight for faith. Keep sharing Christ like the prophets of old in the face of people who would not believe. No, we refuse to believe anything you say. They kept preaching, and so are we. The gospel is still progressing, even in the face of unbelief, even much belief. Unbelief. I mean, right now, it seems like we have this avalanche of unbelief all around us, but like Christ, let us bind ourselves to Christ and to do God's will and to do all that God has called us to do. Amen. They're not, they don't believe, but I'm going to be faithful. I believe God's word. I'm going to fight for people to come to faith in Christ. I'm going to keep preaching and I will be overwhelmed by it might be like David in the Psalms, crying out to God again and again, Lord, help them to come to me, come to you. Why do they cast you off? But I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to keep sharing the gospel. Following this belief and unbelief, we witness then here next a most grievous counsel. A most grievous counsel. Now, outside of Passion Week, this would be one of the most grievous councils convened. The word here for council, you'll very likely recognize it. In the Greek, it's Sanhedrion or Sanhedrin. So, this was a council of 70 to 71 people made up of high priests and elders and Pharisees and the Sadducees as well. And they convene determine, to determine 
what to do about Christ, about this man. And their conclusion is grievous. It's both a grievous and a good counsel. Why can I say that? Or how can I say that second part, a good counsel? Well, because with it, what is happening here is God, he is bringing about his eternal plans, that he is weaving everything together for the purpose of redeeming the lost and desperate sinners like you and me. It was grievous and good because God is bringing about his sovereign plans for redemption and for salvation. And that may sound odd, but as we, we come under Scripture, you know, submitting to God's revelation and its firm emphasis on the reality of God's sovereignty in all things, it is not odd. And so we see this all over the place, but we see this one place in particular in which you know, many of you might already be thinking of it, but in Genesis, in the story of Joseph and his brothers, I mean, what happened to him was heinous. What did they do? Well, Joseph, they, they took their very own brother and they threw him into a pit and they sold him into slavery. And later he would be unjustly thrown in prison, but that's not the end of the story. After God's providential workings, Joseph was then made second to Pharaoh over all of Egypt I mean, I'd like to just hear the brothers at that point when they do find that out. Like, oh, wow, okay. Surprise, you know. That one you threw in the pit, yeah, he's second to Pharaoh. But at the end of Genesis, after Joseph receives back his brothers, Joseph, he tells them this. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So what they did was evil. And we can say that. And what the council is doing here is evil and grievous. But God meant it for good, that you may be saved this day. Amen. Glory in the Lord. Amen. Now, there are a number of things here as we look at this council that we need to see as well. And so, first thing that we can see here of this grievous council it was, is that it was absent of wonder. It was absent of wonder. And this really just kind of adds to the grievous nature of it, this grievous, unbelieving, sinful nature of their meeting. And so they, they look at the signs of Christ and they see his wonders, and this isn't the first time, and they don't even bat an eye. And so they say in verse 47, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? So instead of wonder and faith, 
They wonder about what they should do with this man as though he has kind of this pest to be done away with. I mean, they even admit that he's done these great and incredible things, these incredible signs, but that's not their concern. Like, not even taking a moment and breaking into saying, well, wait a minute, these are some pretty incredible things. Shouldn't we kind of like just think about it for a second? Like, what is that really about? But they don't do that. And they see him as a problem, and if they leave him be, everyone will believe in him. That's their concern, at least their first part of their concern. Now that reason right there for them to despair is a reason for us that we would say if something like that were to happen, we would just be rejoicing and glorifying God. We long to see Many, many people to come to Christ. I mean, how I would love to see many hundreds, many thousands, even many millions of people come to faith in Christ, even in our day. And God may well be preparing us for that. Or not. But I pray that's what's going to be next. Many millions coming to Christ. But this is bad news for them. We don't want that. (laughs) And they are absent of wonder and they're replacing it with just dread. What do we do with this guy? We've got to get him out of our hair. So that's the first thing we see of this council. And then the second we see in this council their ironic and defiant logic. Their ironic and defiant logic. Logic, And so in the second half of verse 48, we discover kind of their second concern. They're also worried about their station. So they're worried that the Romans, they might come and, and take away their lot. You know, their station, their place, their positions of power that they've, they've worked so long to secure all the political maneuvering and everything else that they've been doing, trying to gain favor, especially Caiaphas, who's been high priest for many years now, which was not the case for most high priests. They would be removed very quickly. But he's maneuvered himself in various ways and and made it where he could be high priest again and again, year after year. So, yeah, they're... They're worried about that, and they're worried about the temple, but also all that they will lose with the loss of the temple. And all of that is just ironic. It's ironic because the the type of Christ that they were looking for here, at least in their eyes, I mean, this isn't who Christ really is, because Christ is right here, and we see him here, but the one they're looking for when he comes, in their mind, he would bring about his kingdom, then and there. And he would indeed subvert the authorities of the day. He would bring about a kingdom greater than the Romans. And that's why we see in John 6, the people kind of come and want to take Jesus to be their king. Because this is the kind of vision they had for who the Christ was going to be. And so their their logic is off-centered because 
The very one they were meeting over is the Christ. And yet they want to cast him off. And their logic is a defiant logic. It's driven by rebellion and by the devil and by sin. Even as Jesus already told them, he said in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so they would rather maintain their comforts and their authority than bow down to the true Christ. That's right. Yet, adding to the irony, even as they fret over losing all of those things, we know that they lose them all anyway. They lose all of these things and more, just as Jesus prophesied in Luke 21, 5 and 6. And so in AD 70, the Roman commander, Titus, he would come and he would destroy the temple and he would waylay Jerusalem. And so ironies in the midst of their defiance against the true Christ. So we see that and then third... In the midst of this council, Caiaphas, he contends a man must die. So he comes to them and he, he essentially tells them, none of you know what you're talking about. You know, blunt, the Pharisees were just very blunt, you know, or, you know and he, he just, none of you guys know what you're talking about. Now, even as he tells them that Jesus must die for the nation, Make no mistake here, Caiaphas, he is not concerned about Jesus' mission. His concern is national and political, not salvific. Even so, as true as it may be for Caiaphas, he's thinking in that way, that is the point God is making. This man would die He would come and he would suffer that many may be saved. He would come as the suffering servant to pay for sinners. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Isaiah, he declares, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen. So in him, in Christ, Caiaphas is speaking better than he knows, there would be one full with one shepherd, one people made up of Jews and Gentiles of every tribe, tongue, and nation made alive in Christ. One flock with one shepherd. So we see this kind of dual picture. Caiaphas thinks he's going one direction and God is saying, I am fulfilling all of my good plans. See the irony there too? You have your plans, but mine will be the ones that will be fulfilled. And so it is that we have this grievous counsel with this 
duly grievous and good verdict. And the verdict that would be that Jesus must die. And so from this grievous and good counsel, we see a number of things. And the first thing we see is the urgent danger of missing God. The urgent danger of missing God. If we're not careful, we may well be like the Sanhedrin here. God has graciously given us more resources than ever to know Him, to serve Him, and to spur on hearts in obedience to Him. And yet, right now, we are crying out. We live in a land, or a, in a dry and weary land where there is no water, even as the water abounds. We have at least 20 plus translations of the Bible in English. And many don't even read one. The same Bible that many have died to give us today. The same Bible that believers all over the world would take even one page of Scripture to have for themselves. They would memorize all of it and labor over it and think over it and pray over it. We have access to a multitude of faithful preachers, yet we are still missing God. We have many powerfully and faithfully preaching God's word, and we miss it because we don't like the way he's dressed, or we don't like the way he stands when he preaches, or we don't like the way he moves his arms or his hands, and on it goes, while false preachers are then lifted high, and we love them now more than ever. missing God or we miss God for our preferences I just that's not my worship style you know that's not the way I want it done you know and on it goes this is about me you know it's all about me you know is that what we sing we may miss God because maybe you don't like that kind of God I was talking to someone the other day. He said, I don't want any of that, you know, sin stuff, you know, sermons. You know, none of that wrathful God stuff. I just want to tell you that if you're doing that, you're creating a false God. Because God is both of those things. He is a God of love and a God of wrath. So if you're worshiping that other one, That's not the same God. It's a God you've devised and bowed down to. So where is that hunger for God that wants to hear from God? The hunger that wants to know Him and to make Him known. You know, I remember once listening to some missionaries that came to my church in Oklahoma. They were missionaries to uh, people in Belarus and I just can't forget how they, they told us about the incredible hunger for God that the Belarusians had. And so they, they went out into the town and they began, you know, these missionaries, they went out into the town and began going to people and saying, we're having these services, you know, 
want to invite you and to come. And, and, and so then here comes the service. And, and when they come to the service, the building that they have, the heat does not work and it is in the dead of winter. And so it is immensely cold outside and so cold that none of their equipment works. And so, you know, they're there and they're like, well, I don't know if we'll have anybody, you know. Our heat doesn't work here. I mean, so what, what's going to happen? And, and when the services began, the room, it was packed. And not only was the room and the building packed, people were standing outside looking in through the windows waiting to hear from God and to hear His Word preached. Amen. Now you could, you could look at that and say, well, that's a shame. I wouldn't go stand in the cold. They're crazy. <laughs> no. And you would be missing the point. In fact, you would be missing God altogether. If we're not careful, we can do the same sort of things that they did in that council. We do ministry and we miss God. We have our meetings and we miss God. We can be about all kinds of things and miss His wonders. Especially in America, we need to see the urgent danger of missing God. And second, see the urgent danger subverting Christ for comforts. I'm subverting Christ for comforts. We may well be setting aside Christ for our own lot, for my own pursuits, your own pursuits, our own pursuits, our own comforts, instead of Christ as the Sanhedrin were doing. Are we putting our nation above Christ? Could it be that we have replaced Christ with our comforts? And you may think that's, you know, maybe that's not true. One of my friends, he pastored a church for many years. And he was shocked as his church was growing. And they were seeing people come to faith in Christ when the church just, you know what they did? They voted to say, we're not going to do that anymore. The whole sharing the gospel thing. We don't, we don't want that anymore. We're not about that. We don't want our church to grow. We like it the way it is. Amen. And so there's a real danger here. I want my comforts. I want things the way I want them. And don't you dare get in the way of that. Christ or anyone else. And so this is happening all over the place. Throughout America. It may not be that we subvert Christ for our comforts. That we would rather keep along the same road maintaining the same kind of comforts. Rather than be challenged and get up and follow Christ. That's what we're called to do. Lord, use us. If that means doing this and this, I'll do it for your glory. It may not be comfortable. In fact, it probably won't be comfortable. 
You ever thought that maybe one aspect of the work of the Spirit is persecution and struggle of soul and heart? The early church fathers, one of them even said, this kind of interior war was a mark of the work of the Spirit. So it's a danger, not only, though, of subverting Christ for comforts, but subverting Christ in such a way that we deceive ourselves all the way to hell. C.S. Lewis, he wrote, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Just... You keep going on your comfortable way all the way to hell. So let us not subvert Christ for comforts. And then third, see the urgent danger of godless hearts. So there they are having their meeting. All the while they are opposing the God that they so often speak of. There they are doing business while the hearts aren't about God's business. Could it be that is what we're doing? Would we at least be willing to say that where America is right now is because the church isn't where they should be? And so we need to ask those kind of questions that aren't comfortable to think that business as usual is okay? Why are we doing what we do? Is it for Christ or something else? Whose agenda are we after, friends? We know what theirs was. I want to maintain what we have. (laughs) Maintain my comforts. I'm going to maintain my power and position. And God comes and still takes all that away from them. I think God is saying that we would be better and right to follow Christ instead. So we see all that. And we see as we progress into the end parts of the last parts of our passage here this after this grievous council we see that they begin to execute their plans and we see Christ accused but not guilty Christ accused but not guilty so here we come to the last Passover of this gospel and so When you hear that, that means the hour is getting very near for Jesus. Only a few verses away in chapter 12, Jesus, he will say, where he hasn't said this before, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, John 12, 23. And so with the Passover at hand, yes, the people wonder about Jesus. You know, will he be there? But see also, people know about the orders. The Pharisees have essentially put out a warrant for Jesus' arrest. And so what are they making him out to be? They're making him out to be a criminal. The God-man, perfect 
in righteousness, never sinned, never done anything wrong whatsoever. And they are ready to accuse him of high crimes while he is not guilty of even one of them. And so, also for those who say, or those who know Christ, we will encounter similar verdicts against us. Now, we don't need to go about here, you know, seeing persecution everywhere, like that's why they're doing this when it's not really persecution, or, you know, nor excuse wrongs that we have done and say it's just persecution when we have been, you know, the fool per se, you know, doing things we shouldn't do and say that's persecution. That's not persecution. So we need to be honest, but as followers of Christ, we may well encounter similar revilements, insults, and declarations of wrongdoing as well, just like Christ. I know I have. I've encountered that in my life. And then it won't stop. It's going to continue. And we see that as a common thread of the maligning of God's servants. They malign Christ, and so they malign the servants of Christ as well. And that's hard when people say things that you know are not true. But they're saying them anyway. And what are we to do? Well, we are to do what Jesus did. Set our face like flint upon God and his mission and his word. I know what you say is true. I know what your word says of me is true. The standard is Christ and Christ is in me. And so I'm alive and I'm perfectly righteous because of Jesus Christ. No matter what they say, as they falsely accuse me as well. So in view of all this, in view of their belief and unbelief, this this grievous counsel and these common accusations, let's set God in his proper place, church. Let's love and fear him. Let's preach Christ. Let's hunger and pant after God and take up his word and eat and drink from it. Let's follow Christ, comforts or no comforts. Let's give him our hearts fully. Let's be reviled and not revile in return. Let's be holy, Christ. Setting God in his proper place in our hearts in our churches, in our families, and in all of life. So let us do that. Let's not miss him. Let's follow him. Give all of our life to him. Let's pray. Father, None of us here come as those who have it all together. None of us here come as those who can say that we're above any of this. But we come and we do pray that, Lord, you would just show us, Lord. Show us any sinful way in us. Show us any way that we are indeed supplanting you because of whatever it is how many ways we may miss you, Lord. May you help us, Lord, 
to humble ourselves and seek your face, to be still and know that you are God, that you may be exalted among the nations. And so we pray, search us, show us, Lord. Help us to just simply let our hearts be yours and help us to see if if there's any sin there that we would confess it, repent of it, and get up and follow Christ. We would do all that we're called to do, be all that we're called to be. And in the midst of imperfection, we would love one another fiercely. And so we pray for your help, Lord, in these things. We pray for those who may not know Christ here or online. We pray your hand. Open their eyes to the truth of these things and seeing that they need Jesus. May they believe, confessing Christ, believing in him as their Lord, Savior, hope, treasure, and all. And so help them, Father. May we respond this morning, Lord, as we sing this song. We ask for your grace in doing that. Lord, help us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.